if you gave me two ideas, one that had great distribution and a mediocre product, or a great product and mediocre distribution, I'd rather have the first. With the distribution, I can learn and improve and fix the product. Whereas in the second, you might have a good product, but if no one's using it, it doesn't matter. That's the voice of Reed Hoffman. He's the host of the highly acclaimed Masters of Scale podcast. He's had an illustrious and multifaceted journey to startup greatness. If you've ever wondered how to start a network effects business that connects people from the ground up or a consumer business that scales massively, I don't know anyone who understands it better. This is Mike Maples Jr. of Floodgate, and it's go time with Reed Hoffman. Welcome to Starting Greatness, a podcast dedicated to ambitious founders who want to go from nothing to awesome super fast. When you're a startup founder, you have to channel your inner James Bond, your MacGyver, your Wonder Woman. I'm going to help you win by curating the lessons of the super performers, but before they were successful. So without further ado, ignition sequence start. Let's get started. If I had to pick someone who knows consumer internet and network effects businesses the very best, I would choose Reed Hoffman. For the better part of three decades, Reed has refined his approaches to using the internet to connect people. And while many are familiar with his successes as an entrepreneur, investor, author, and podcaster, not as many know that he started his first company, SocialNet, in the 1990s, almost a decade before the concept of social networking was even on other people's radar screens. He was later one of the charter members of the PayPal Mafia, as well as the founder of LinkedIn. He was an angel investor in Facebook, as well as virtually every meaningful social networking company. He's currently a venture capitalist at Greylock, where he led their investment companies like Airbnb. But most importantly, Reed is a great human being. I credit almost all of my early success in consumer internet investing to the lessons he generously shared with me. Ironically, we had mutual connections on LinkedIn, which got us off to the right start. Reed Hoffman is a consistently generous person with a benevolent soul and a win-win approach to people in life. I'm excited for others to get a sense of what his positive energy is really like. So let's do this. All right, Reed Hoffman, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming. Always. Great to see you. So I think probably a lot of people don't know this about you, but it wasn't like LinkedIn was like your first social networking rodeo. In fact, if, if my memory is right, you were even at Apple working on like eWorld or That's something right. like That's that. That's exactly yeah, right. Yeah, so like how did you – what's your relationship to the topic <laughs> of social networking? How did you get into that in the first place? Well, so it's, it's a funny story. So originally I thought I was going to be an academic. And so I went to Oxford to study philosophy because I was curious about what makes us human and how we think and speak and communicate with each other. How do we find truth? How do we find connection with each other? And I realized that academic path wouldn't be scalable enough for me. And so I was. I thought, oh, well, I could go uh, – software could be really scalable. I'll go work in software. And I'd done early internet things, but I wasn't thinking the internet revolution until I got back and started looking at – what would be the scope of products? What could make things happen? And I don't know how many people know this term anymore. Personal information managers was the thing I was thinking about when I was in Oxford. And so then I came back and I went, oh, my God, the online revolution is about to happen. Yes, this is exactly that kind of thing of how do we make ourselves better as individuals in a society and how do we fashion software that makes that happen? The reason I went to eWorld is I went live my first programming thing was an Apple IIc, yep. <laughs> right? And my first personal computer was a Mac. 
I was like, okay, Apple does this design well. They have really great interface. There's a lot of stuff that they do. You know, that seems like the natural place to go. They're doing an online service, so I should go do that. That was eWorld. And then um, when I said, okay, I want to go start building the kinds of products that I think would transform people's lives, that's what I want to do as a startup. And that was why my first startup was SocialNet. The classic engineering design place when it comes to software is people, places, and things, right? There was Claris software. There was, there was all this thing about like, how do we do a simulcrum of the real world and the things that matter to us, our work, our entertainment, et cetera, people, places, and things, and put them all in the digital world? The, the thing that I started telling people, I think it was 1996, is like, it's not people, places, and things. It's people, people, people. What most matters to other people? People. Sure, they like places. Sure, they like things. But we're social animals. And Aristotle, we're political animals. So focus on people. How do you make people better with each other? That's the thing to do. And that was the idea on SocialNet, which was a platform for dating and for uh, roommates and for uh, activities and sport partners and also uh, professional networking. And part of the reason why the professional networking really stuck with me is the first, the platform worked for the first three and it totally didn't work for the professional networking. I was like, no, but this is really important. Like if you go to people and their lives, you can kind of like their family, their friends and their work. That's kind of what matters to them. Those are the three big areas. And so, well, the work is important. We got to be able to figure this out. And that's part of where LinkedIn came from. Interesting. And, and then with SocialNet, were there, were there other things that you learned at SocialNet that directly impacted your thought process at LinkedIn? Well, many of the aphorisms that I kind of trot out in the business arena were all like SocialNet time. Because basically, almost every week on Friday, there were things I wish I knew on Monday. And they're not like, oh, would you know, Bob or Sue return my phone call. It was like, oh shit, this is how you play this game. This is how you should think about it. Yep. So the learning curve was, I think, well uh, put by Peter Thiel and one of the things he said about PayPal, which is, I've never learned so much except for maybe between the ages of two and three, uh -huh. right? And it's just this, this tsunami, this fire hose of, oh my God, yeah. <laughs> right? All these things. And so, for example, focus on distribution. Be embarrassed by your first product release, MVP, learning curve. Don't over-presume that you know what your product market fit is. Get there and start adjusting. You may have this absolutely solid vision about how the world would be much better off with this product, but... Can people see the iter of steps of those visions? Can they participate? If they're going to invest, will they invest? Are they going to discover it? Another one that is part of the reason I was uh, part of the founding team of PayPal was on the board of directors. One of the things that uh, I had learned at SocialNet that I that became a core part of how PayPal worked. When I started, I thought, oh, the way you build organizations is kind of the classic, like you read these business books, you listen to MBAs, and like, well, you got to get an ops person who's had 10 plus years of ops experience, and they've got to be your ops person. You get a marketing person who like went to marketing school and did that and all. So you had kind of these canonical types. And what I realized was, no, 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 you have to have fast learners and you have to have team players. Yeah. Right, like, like this game is actually not about the oh well. I've been doing marketing for you know Hasbro for twenty years, and so that, then I'm going to come over to this internet thing and it's going to work. It's like no, no. I have an understanding of what the, the mission is. I have some understanding of what the task, and I'm going to learn fast. Yeah. So a skill base is useful, but that learning curve as an individual and as a team was super important. And and was that part of? I, I suppose that's part of what made PayPal so good, right? You didn't have super experienced people, but you had super fast learners. Exactly, a and bunch that, of them. Because that was part of the thing that I had learned. I was failing at at SocialNet. Mm -hmm. 
that when you know Max uh, Levchin and Peter and I would take these walks, we did a walk every Saturday morning at the Dish, and we'd be going through. And I'd be literally going, "Well, here's the things I've learned in the last year and a half about." what not to do and what maybe to do better, right? Okay. And they're super smart. They have their own ideas and else, but it was like, okay, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's just make sure we're hiring super smart, fast-moving people. Interesting. And so you also have a, a an approach that I've always found interesting. Not just VCs should have an investment thesis, but so should entrepreneurs. And when you, when you start your company and you're raising money and somewhat even independent of fundraising, there should be an investment thesis. So how did you think about that at LinkedIn and how would you generalize that for founders? Part of the thing that you should have, because this this gives you a sense of whether or not you should double down, stay on target, pivot, et cetera, is to have a clearly set of articulated beliefs about the way the world is becoming, like it is now and is becoming, where your role in that world would be, like what your product or service would be, and what uh, you're going to successfully do in order to enable that role. And that's what essentially the, the composite of the investment thesis is. And so, for example, for LinkedIn, it was, well, actually, in fact, uh, every professional in the world should have a public identity. That public identity should identify what kinds of business that they're that they're interested in or willing to engage in. And for example, it could be that I'm not looking for a job, but, you know, look, if you reach out to me with something interesting, I might I might take a phone call or not. Or I'm actually only looking for business for my company, or I'm only looking for advisory gigs, whatever the thing is. I, I have a statement about kind of who I am and what kind of ways you can knock on my what you can knock on my door for. And that that would make the world much better for individuals, a much better opportunity flow. It would make the world better for uh, companies because they could find the right talent that could really unlock the value. It would also make the companies better employers because then you actually, in fact, have to be compelling in your mission, compelling in your compensation pocket. You can't use secrecy and hiding as a way of kind of locking in your talent. It actually has to be that you're utilizing the talent the right way. You're helping them grow. You're helping develop the career. They're working on a mission that they're super passionate about, so it's better for the companies. And then, of course, it's better for the industries because when you have better companies that are thriving, building, growing, competing, et cetera, that makes a better industry. So the whole world is better off. What does that mean for LinkedIn? You say, well, you have to get people to start establishing those profiles. Uh, They have to be willing to be communicated. You have to be safe enough that they don't just get drenched with stuff, that their positive experiences outweigh their negative experiences. And one of the curves I would frequently draw to early employees is say, look, for a lot of people, it's okay if I have a lot of neutral experiences, as long as I don't have seriously negative ones. And then you have that occasional moment of, of amazement and surprise and delight. That's okay. It doesn't have to be wonderful day by day by day. Because in the early days of growing the network in LinkedIn, a lot of people were like, well, people told me I should check this out. I'm not really sure what I would use this for. Yeah, but okay. But hey, why not? <laughs> hey, why not? And then you know, when, you're, uh, when your friend Mike would join, you get a notification saying, hey, Mike joined. I go, oh, well, let me go back and check it out and see, see why Mike joined. It's like, oh, it's about the same. But then after Sue joined or Beth joined, you go, oh, I could begin to see how this could be useful to me. Useful to me as individually, useful to me as my company. And that's how it would grow. And so you'd say, okay, the set of things that uh, that LinkedIn could do is establish these profiles, get them engaged enough that they'd be responsive, and then some of them would start being active, and then some of those could, would flip into being things that were so important that people would pay for them right? as part of the use cases. And then the tactics would be um, kind of things like, okay, well, uh, how do you get people to invite people? 
right? Like the only thing this is really going to work is that people are going to invite people. Yeah. So how do you get people to invite people? What what are the mechanics of virality? What are the the, the creative parts and what are the, the scientific parts in order to make that work? And that was kind of the composite set of investment thesis okay. within LinkedIn. Part of our whole fail fast dictum is not fail. It's find out if one part of your investment thesis isn't actually, in fact, working yep. and, and learn as fast as possible so that you pivot, you adjust. Sometimes yep. they're micro pivots. And so we had to start inventing some of the techniques. Like, for example, the feature of people you may know was one of the very early features that LinkedIn invented because we said, okay, people get here and they're trying to decide whether or not to invest in the – because the, the, the invitation curve was not what we'd hoped. Our early set of tactics in the third set were not working. Uh, we were, like, doing 2000 thousand people a week, right? Which is like, you know, we had to get to a million to have the value proposition work. And so we started inventing uh, different features to say, what are the things that when, when, when Mike arrives at the site, what's his first question? And we said, well, he's really like, who else is here? Is, th is this the right place for me? The way I answer that question is, well, who else is here? Do people I know here? Okay, let's do the people you may know feature. There's another metaphor that I like that I think relates to this investment thesis notion, which is when you're a startup founder, you're jumping off a cliff with all the parts of an airplane, and you have to assemble the airplane and start flying before you hit the ground, right? You may be halfway down the cliff and you realize, I don't have a propeller, in which case you may just be host, right? Your, your investment thesis is wrong. There's no way to make it right. You just say, oh, crap, oh, crap, oh, crap, bang, hit the ground, right? Whereas there may be other times you jump off the cliff and you find you're missing a wheel on the plane and you're like, well, it's going to be an uncomfortable landing, but I can assemble the plane, right? I, can, I still got room to maneuver. I can MacGyver my way out of this, Yes. right? So I guess a lot of this investment thesis is as you assemble the plane, how do you sort of like, you know, use duct tape and bailing wire to figure out how to make this thing come together and fly? Exactly. And and this is um, one of the reasons I, I, I do this is to help everyone understand versus mortal. You're, you're like, you're the ground. Your default after you've jumped off the, crowd, the cliff is the ground. Yep. You don't assemble a plane, it's the ground. Yep. The second thing is, is back when I first started coining this metaphor, I saw so many entrepreneurs saying, I've been successful, I raise money. And you're like... Raising money is not successful. Yeah, it means you jumped off a cliff. <laughs> yes, yes, you jumped off a cliff. Raising money is a thermal draft. The ground is a little further away now, <laughs> right? But it's, but it's coming. still coming, right? <laughs> so focus on the plane. When I wrote my first book, The Startup You, is all the advice I give companies refactored to individuals. So it's actually useful to companies as well. And I have this framework called ABZ planning. What it is is you have a plan A. This is how I'm going to build a plane. Then you're like – Oh, that's not investment thesis. That's not quite working the way I think. It isn't a plan B. Most people think a plan B is, oh, now I pull up the second book and I break the seal and this is the thing I'm doing. No, no. Plan is plans B. Yep. It's like tune this, try this, try this, shift this investment thesis, shift the focus this way, shift the model some this way. And those are the set of micro to macro pivots that you may be doing as you're testing and adjusting your investment thesis. And that's why you're doing it. Plan Z is, oh, shit, it's not working. How did you think about building out the network, right? Because in a network effects company, you've got you to get critical mass scale of the network oftentimes before you monetize, right? So classic theory of building a company would be more like Jeffrey Moore crossing the chasm. Figure out your early niche of users and penetrate that niche and then go into adjacent segments with whole products, cross the chasm, and off you go. But you have two technology adoption problems, right? You've got to get people to adopt the network, 
And if nobody adopts the network, there's no company, there's no value, it's worth zero. Yes. And then and then after they adopt the network, someday you figure out how to like figure out the sequence of buyers and how to monetize the thing. What do you have to prove in building that network in the Series A to raise a Series B? So Friendster was growing. People were interested enough that Benchmark and Kleiner – uh, uh, co-led the Series A for Friendster because they said, "Okay, look at this, look at this exponential adoption curve. Yeah, something's happening. Yeah, because because basically a lot of what um, you know we smart investors and entrepreneurs do is if if you see a compounding curve, which is an exponential curve, in uh, you know registrations, engagement, adoption, or something, you pay a lot of attention to it. It almost flips you from the default of, well, I want more proof and everything else to, well, maybe I should take the flyer, right?" So we didn't need to necessarily get to an exponential curve, but we wanted to get to a really good uh, set of examples by which we had good growth, that a lot of people were registering, that you could see that the network was getting to substantial enough density, that the use cases that we were talking about and the features that we have in those use cases, and then after that, the potential revenue on those use cases could actually all work. So we knew that part of the way the world should be, this kind of like looking at the future and saying, well, what would make everything in the world better? Better for individuals, better for companies, better for industries, was that actually, in fact, if you had a worldwide professional directory where people say, here's who I am, this is what I'm doing, and you could reach out to what is called the passive candidate, which is like someone who might work with you and say, hey, this is the kind of thing I'm thinking of doing, and then create that. And so that was kind of the pole star for this is where we should be going. And we knew the first places of magic would be the, oh gosh, I found someone I could recruit. What we were trying to build towards was to show that we now had enough of a network that everyone started saying, oh, that could be interesting. Like one of the uh, funniest things from the very early days in LinkedIn was, I think this was 2003, it might have been 2004, um, Nokia looked at this and said, oh, well, we don't want like LinkedIn spreading through our employees, so we're going to ban LinkedIn. And we went, okay, well, this is our test of this network effects question that you and I, because yeah. like, does that mean all of a sudden Nokia goes dark? Right. And so we were we were watching it very carefully. Because, and their, their extensive thing that they said to their employees, because this is kind of an absurd thing to say, well, you can't have a an identity online is kind of like like literally bizarrely like, not super paranoid. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And they said, well, it's because your title is is confidential company information, right? It's like, oh, you mean the thing you hand out in your business cards all the time? But anyway, so they did that. The actual only impact was, I think it was 23 people resigned their accounts out of LinkedIn, and the growth rate continued exponentially within Nokia. In that one email thing that they sent out to their employee base, some people went, okay, fine, I don't really care. I was checking out this weird internet site that I don't really know what it's for I kind of anyway. didn't even remember that I signed yeah, it. Yeah, don't really yeah. care. And and yet the viral spread kept happening. And as the viral spread, it's like, well, people said, well, this actually could be useful to me. Not only useful to me as as my own job and career, but also useful for me in, in figuring out which uh, industry connections to make. So we knew that that would be the case. And so the, the investment thesis in uh, Series A with Sequoia was, could we get the network growing? Could we actually get a base in the network? And the investment uh, thesis in Series B is, could we get the recruitment cases going, and could we could we prove revenue? So uh, inherent in a lot of what you're describing as well is the importance of distribution. Yes. And so particularly if you're building out a network. So how did you get 
sort of switched on to this idea of distribution because I don't think that many people in the early 2000s were distribution-led in their thinking. I would like to say it was a pure intuitive genius, but actually was learning from experience. So my first startup, SocialNet, I started with a classic you know, kind of like, oh, you have to build a really great product, and then with a really great product, then you pay for marketing, and you pay for the marketing, and then it works, and that's the sequence of how you do things. And so I spent a year, you know, with the curtains closed, you know, kind of building this product that I thought was great for the market, and then pulled back the, you know, the Spring curtains. Bring it on the world. Yes, and thinking that I'm going to pay for marketing, and this is going to just work great, and that was called social net. I was genius on some ideas and an idiot on others. Like, it was a mixture of some good, some bad. And then you were like, oh, and your generic thing is you were just going to do do some partnerships and buy some advertising and that was going to work? Well, in the internet, one of the things that's true about it is there's so many things going on. There's so much competition, so much noise, someone else, that the, oh, we're just going to buy some advertising, right? Dead, like dead on arrival. Just terrible, terrible bad idea. Kind of, oh, we'll partner with newspapers, we'll partner with magazines, we'll partner with TV shows. Also, disastrously bad ideas. The rule for consumer internet, and general rule for most businesses is, while the entrepreneurial instinct is build the product, then figure out the distribution, you should figure out product and distribution together. And in fact, to emphasize this, especially within the consumer internet, what I started saying was to say, look, if you gave me two ideas, one that had great distribution and a mediocre product, or a great product and mediocre distribution, I'd rather have the first. Yep. Because with the distribution, I can learn and improve and fix the product, because I can be getting engagement from consumers and going, oh, we should do this and, and you this. You get and users do, in the first place. You get users in the first place, and then you're relevant. Yep. Whereas in the second, you might have a good product, but if no one's using it, it doesn't matter. I, I remember in the early days, you being one of the, maybe one of the only entrepreneurs I knew who was building these networks in a premeditated way, right? Kind of saying distribution is not something else you do. Distribution is part of the product. Yes. And it, matter of fact, sometimes what consumer internet entrepreneurs do is say, I have a distribution idea. What's the product that goes along with it? Right? Yeah. That's how extreme you should focus on distribution, yeah. right? Because without it, nothing. Yeah. Zero. Zilch, yeah. right? And frequently, one of the challenges in, in network and network effect businesses is they also have the flip side of, until the network is there, zero value proposition, right? This is true for PayPal, this is true for LinkedIn, this is true, like all of them have to start what it, we frequently refer to as the cold start problem, but you also have to get to critical mass before any of it works, yep. right? And to me, the pure example at the time was Skype. Yes, Skype's one of the ones which is classically when you say, well, this is the kind of thing that couldn't start here that would start in Europe. Because the international phone calls were so expensive yep. that people would say, okay, I'm going to stop using the thing I know, which we all have, which has a universal network of the phone. I'm going to go buy this new headset. I'm going to install this software on my PC, and I'm going to try to get people to be talking to me through my software. Like, right. oh, my God, the amount of friction and all of this. Yep. But, oh, my God, international calls are really expensive. And so in Europe, it takes off. And that's before it gets to the U.S. where people are like, oh, okay, that makes sense now that there's a whole network. Yeah, I mean, we say in value hacking, right, F find the thing that you can do unique that people are desperate for. Yes. Right? Who was the most desperate? It was Europeans. Yes, exactly. And, and you look back and it was it's obvious that that was true, right? And not only that, you're, if, if you're in Europe, your, your customer base, your early set of adopter users not only have the desperation, but they give you the feedback 
about how to make the product spread. Exactly. So then back to distribution, what, what else do you think are sort of the important takeaways about distribution for founders if, if, they're, if they're trying to build a network from scratch? What you have to think about is a lot of the way that a lot of distribution works is that you are essentially uh, building a distribution mechanism upon platforms. So one platform is email. So the viral invite through email was one of the things that was very present and very capable 2002 to maybe about 2007. Yeah. Right. Because people were like, oh, I haven't tried this before. This is kind of interesting. Sure, I'll hit the upload my address book. Sure, I'll hit the send out a whole bunch of invitations. Like even Facebook worked that way, right, in order to, to, to cross over from the universities into the broader world. People are much more skeptical about doing that, much more resistant to doing that today. Other platforms are like, oh, you have an SEO strategy that has a viral loop. Well, that's the search engine you know, strategy. There's different ways. You have a, a way of, of um, a PayPal through eBay. It was the posting on, on listings and then finding buyers who go, oh, I look at this listing on eBay. And oh, what's this PayPal thing? Okay, I'll use that in order to pay this person. Yep. And, then, and then spreading that way. You now we also invade a community. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, because it's, it's, it's spread through platforms mm-hmm. is, roughly, is roughly the right way of looking at a lot of these distributions. Now, sometimes you can say, look, I do it in a raw thing. I have a telesales force and we call people. But by the way, that's also the platform of telephones and so forth. So the actual right general structure of this is, is how are you operating within a platform to spread within that platform? Okay. Right, is, is the thing. And then the question becomes is, do you have a good cost-effective one for your business? And how do you play against competition and antibodies? Mm-hmm. Right, so the reason I started with the email thing is, in 2003, more or less the right thing to do was figure out how to get people to send emails yep. <laughs> right, yep. on your behalf. Yep. That doesn't work as well anymore. It's not to say it's totally closed, but the antibodies are very high. Yeah, people just are like, oh, man, yeah, another eh, one of these. Yeah, yeah, I don't want to do it. I don't want to get it. I don't have time. There's <laughs> yes. too many. Yeah. So it has to be really distinct and unique to to work in that environment. And so then there's other things where people say, okay, well, uh, you know, today I'll spread through a different communications platform. I'll spread through Instagram or I'll spread through like whatever the thing might be that will cause me to spread. Another thing I remember you talking about at the time uh, that PayPal was starting to get lift was this notion of a rhythm of doublings. And, and I haven't seen as many entrepreneurs adopt that strategy, and I think a lot would benefit from that. So like, how did you think about that back in those days? Doubling is the simplest way to understand both an exponential curve and also to understand how the game changes. Right, and that's part of the reason why in blitzscaling the architecture of is is kind of like the the doubling of the employee base as yep. a way of ha- changing how you operate, you know, how communications, how management, you know, yep. how multi-threading, all these things work in the organization. And so it's the simplest way to get okay. I get compounding, and I also get the game changes. Yep. Right. So part of the way when you're charting anything from user acquisition, revenue lines, organizational size, all the rest to say, okay, what happens? Like, when should we next double? What should the doubling rates like? Like, how do things change when we double? Should the doubling be really fast? <laughs> right? That's the kind of the, the simplest measure by which people can make this abstraction about sometimes exponential curves or other things. And when does the game change into something tangible? Yeah. So the, what, one of the things I, I took away from it when you described it was exponential growth is incredibly counterintuitive. And it's just not how we normally think about things in day to day. 
And so rhythm of doublings, you can you can do two things. One is you can be more here and now about what has to happen. Like people can understand what it means double. Yes. Uh, they can visualize that. And, and you kind of say, okay, well, exponential growth can be reduced to a, a sequence of doublings, each of which takes a certain amount of time. But the rhythm comes in where you say, okay, there are certain things we need to do to make this product have 10 million users, but that's several doublings away. And so those aren't today's doublings problems. And so it's kind of like you got to get today's doubling done and you got to walk into the next doubling with a set of groundwork laid so that you can make the next doubling happen. Exactly. But five doublings out, you might not want to be concerned about that right yeah, now. Yes. And you almost never can be. I yeah. mean, sometimes you might have an idea or a thread or look like we really need to do this platform. Like we need to architect our, our service or our servers this way so that we don't die on the fifth doubling. Yeah. So, you know, there's some, I like to call them readisms that I've learned over the years that I thought uh, some of the listeners might get a kick out of. So maybe we'll do this as a buzz round. Okay, I'll, I'll run it by you and then you could kind of uh, illuminate us some. So um, people are complicated and flawed, root for their better angels. One of the things that happens is you go, look, when you're working with these really accomplished, like, you know, you and I investing in these amazing entrepreneurs, the people who are really edgy, who are really going to try to do something amazing, they're, they're, they're these complicated groups. And we ourselves complicated people. They can be disagreeable. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Disagreeable, cantankerous. What we want is we want people to be the best version of themselves. We want them to succeed. We want that to happen. Try to engage with them in the way that you bring out their better angels and you bring out your own better angels, that you succeed in together. And to set that as a joint goal. There's tons of, of super competent people who have some weaknesses. Great. We'll work together on deploying the amazement, the, the amazing things and avoiding the weaknesses. I'll speak personally. People are always frustrated by the fact that I don't uh, – I'm kind of like messy, right? Like what I'll do, I'm really good firefighter, which means I'll drop the current operational process and I'll go run to deal with the fire. And everyone's like, well, what happened to the operational process? We were all dependent upon that. So that's my weakness that people have to help me with and work with me. Yep. But the thing you get from it is that I'm an amazing firefighter. The best way to get a powerful person's attention, offer to help them. Yes. The real problem that a lot of people uh, do when they approach a person is they don't think in scale. They don't realize that lots and lots of people come up to me saying, you could do this for me, right? It would be great if you did this for me. Like introduced me to so-and-so, looked at my business plan, gave me advice on X. And you're like, yeah, if I, if I did that to everyone who came up to me, literally I would spend all my time doing it and I'd still have more requests for it. So the question is, how do you tangibly show someone, I realize this is this is like we're trying to help each other, right? It's, it's, it's a relationship. If you can figure out how you can be helpful to that person, or at least showing that you're trying, you have a much more favorable response. So for example, you're a college student, you come up to an experienced professional like you or me, and you say, well, you know, what I really want is advice on my startup, of course. It's like, okay, how could I show that I'm I'm viewing this as a relationship? It's like, hey, I've noticed some interesting things going on in college and tech adoption and that may be useful to you. Yeah. Let me run you through some of that. Oh, hey, that's pretty helpful. That's interesting. And by the way, I'm trying to figure out my startup. Is there anything you could tell me about what to do about that? By starting with the thing that's like, what's the thing I have that could be potentially useful to you? It's like, great. You understand this is a give and a take. This is how we build a relationship. This is how we help each other. So every weakness has a corresponding strength. Right. Well, I already referred to one part of it was me, which is the ability to drop everything, 
focus entirely on firefighting like is a strength and the weakness is, oh my God, I go black on operational, run the trains kind of things. And the vast majority of things that we think of as really unique strengths actually in fact have corresponding weaknesses. So for example, you're super smart, you can have a lot of analytic complexity in your head. Well, sometimes you'll pursue two, two complex strategies, or you'll think that just being smart versus grit is the right solution. Sometimes you'll go, well, actually, in fact, hiring amazing, unique talent and, and the individual strength is what's really important. Well, actually, sometimes team play is, is really good because sometimes the people who are such stellar individuals are not really good at the team play. And when you're composing a team, you're looking for some people who are also like, no, 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 I'm a great team member. I may not be the world's best designer, the world's best engineer, but I'm a really strong player on the team, right? So those are the kinds of things where many of these virtues in, this, in strength also have shady sides. And that's when you're composing, well, what do we need for this problem? What do we need for this team? Who should I be working with? You know, what, what is the combination of characteristics? So somewhere out there, uh, there's founders listening to this. <laughs> if you could give them one piece of advice that we haven't talked about already, mm. what would it be? Going back to the thing that we were talking about, the investment thesis. Part of how to understand that you have a good investment thesis is, what are the things that you understand in each of these categories of the investment thesis that other people don't? Yep. And what's the specific risk that you're taking? Because if you can't identify the risk you're taking, like if you say, oh no, it's just obvious, it's gonna really work. Well, that's not how the actual future is created. There's something, there's a risk you're taking on that vision of what you see, like for example, a lot of people, when I started LinkedIn, were like, oh, no, 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 people will hate having a professional identity out there and they won't want to be contacted. And uh, the worries that their companies will fire them or not give them bonuses if they're in it. That was kind of the counter side of it. My belief in that was, well, actually, in fact, once you begin to show people that both great things can happen for them and great things can happen for the company, that people will begin to take those risks in compounding numbers, and then that will change the culture. That the culture of, no, 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 you're betraying your company if you have a public professional profile, then goes away. Yep. And, and it will go away everywhere, in Japan, everywhere, right? And that thesis turned out to be correct, but could have been wrong. And I was clear about what the thesis was, and I was clear about what the risks were, and I knew how to kind of look at it. Not that it was like, oh, a measure, like, well, 3% of people click sign up versus 2%. That's always math and interesting. But what are the things that were on track for this investment thesis? Where is it unique? Where is it, where is it contrarian to what other people are thinking? And then that contrarianness, what's the risk in it? And how are you paying attention to that? Yeah, so I, it, you know, as you describe that, it's almost like risk is something you take. Right, yes. like it, it, risk. Most people think of risk as like, oh, I don't want that, but no great upside opportunity comes without risk. Like everybody wants great upside opportunity. Nobody wants to take the risk to get that upside opportunity. But that's just not how it works. Yes, exactly. So, which risk are you buying? Because the price of that risk. It was almost one way of a market way of putting it is you understand that the price of that risk. Other people think that risk is expensive because they just avoid it. Because they avoid it, and you realize it's cheap for the upside. All right. Well, thanks, Reed. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Always a pleasure. I look forward to this. Thanks for listening to Starting Greatness. You can follow me on Twitter at M2JR. And please shoot me an email with any comments or questions to greatness at floodgate.com. I hope you'll subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
And if you like the show, I'd be grateful if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Never let go of your inner power to do great things in whatever matters to you. And until we meet again, remember, greatness is a decision. Greatness is a decision.